Well, good morning, Dr. Hillard, and welcome to our June podcast. Thank you very much. It's good to, to talk with you, Dr. Tyson. So, yeah, um, we're back at another podcast for, um, it's the month of June, but uh, we are going to focus on the April issue of JPEG. Correct. And these have been some challenging times. I, I hope you're doing okay. I know our listeners are all struggling and, and trying to find a, a comfortable place in life, too. Thank you for asking. And, and uh, yeah, it's been a difficult time. I guess we can use that as our excuse for being a little delayed in our um, podcast. It has been challenging for everyone and certainly COVID times and uh, being uh, socially isolated and, and um, all of related to the pandemic. But then in the last week, uh, the real horrifying news that we have seen and how, um, how so many people are um, understandably angry about police violence and uh, just very, very difficult times. So, um, so maybe our podcast can be a bit of a reprieve and a bit of a break for people um, as we talk about uh, JPEG. Absolutely. I agree. So hopefully we can bring you a little education and break, and uh, you can enjoy some wonderful insights from Dr. Hillard and our April edition of JPEG. Uh, before we dive in, though, we were going to discuss our little introduction book review, and um, both of us really enjoyed Circe by Madeline Miller. Um, it's just a fun book talking um, about Circe, who's the daughter of the god of sun, and um, Percy, the ocean nymph. And while she's divine, she isn't as refined and beautiful and uh sort of well featured as her siblings in, in the Greek mythology. So she gets shunned and is ridiculed um, among the gods. And she just falls in love as well with the mortal. And that, of course, doesn't go well. So she becomes sort of a sorcerer with witchcraft. Um, it, it's an amazing storytelling book. I loved her writing and I felt like I was, you know, right by her side going through her trials and tribulations um, and, and I was telling you earlier, I was just thinking I wanted to study more Greek mythology again or go to Greece. It sort of just made me want to be part of all of that and learn some more history. Um, what did you think? I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, it brought me back to a wonderful book that my grandmother gave me when I was about 10 on Greek mythology. And so that was that was fabulous. And uh, I really enjoyed the intrigues of the gods and the goddesses and they had complicated motivations and sure. nefarious motivations, <laughs> and they held grudges forever. Um, <laughs> they do, literally <laughs> forever. Just, yeah, <laughs> it was just so fascinating, and I thought the author did such a good job of, of kind of giving us a, a picture of these gods and, and goddesses. Um, but I really loved the character of Circe. And uh, I thought she was, to me, more, much more relatable uh, than some of the other better-known um, gods and goddesses. And, and I just loved her being a sorcerer. And she also was a weaver. And uh, right. I thought that was really cool. So Yeah, I, I did it. too. Well, it's a great summer read for everyone. And I think you and I have a, another knack for picking out 
books that are going to be uh, made into movies. So this is coming out on HBO Max at some point, I heard. So that uh-huh. I definitely will want to watch. Uh-huh. Probably won't be as great as the book. But, um, and, and then the next book we have been talking about is really going to be relatable to the times. And it is called The Street by Anne Petrie. So this is a book that, that I had heard uh, recommended on uh, NPR and, um, uh, or PBS, uh, the, the uh, evening news. And uh, it's about an African-American single mother and her struggles um, takes place in Harlem during World War II. And uh, I think it's a book that probably is uh, important for our times. And uh, I understand that it's one of the first books by an African-American author to sell over a million copies. And, and so lots of people have read it. I hadn't, uh, but I really look forward to reading it. I've, I've started it and it's hard to put down. Oh, good. Well, excellent. Well, we'll talk about that Hopefully on our next podcast in just a few weeks, we're going to do our best to catch up and, and review the June edition of JPEG, which just recently came out as well. Talk about the April JPEG edition, and I wanted to highlight your editorial uh, first and foremost, because you really talk a little bit about, well, you tell us a little bit about what being a PAG provider is, and uh, you've been a PAG specialist for a very long time now, so tell us a little bit about it. So I have really been uh, doing pediatric and adolescent gynecology since the early 1980s. And in 1981, I joined the faculty of the University of Virginia, and I was the first and only female faculty member in the department of OBGYN at UVA. And because of that, the pediatricians really latched onto me to see their adolescent patients. And Fortunately, that was around the, the time in the mid to, to later 80s that NASPAG was forming. And uh, I, I don't remember exactly what year was the first year that I attended um, a NASPAG meeting, but I remember presenting a paper with one of my kids in a snuggly. And <laughs> it was, uh, I was That's anxious perfect. that they were going to wake up and, and be noisy and want to contribute to the talk. Um, <laughs> they didn't, but, but people were so supportive and it was like, I, I found my people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, so it was great. And so I, I was doing PAG at a time when they're really um, weren't formal fellowships. There were a few people who were doing mentoring, but uh, I really found a home in the Division of Adolescent Medicine and, and felt very much at home there with colleagues in adolescent medicine. There was a senior um, uh, faculty person there, Jerry Rao, uh, one of the grandfathers of adolescent medicine. Uh, Frank Biro and I joined the Adolescent Medicine Division in, in about the same time and Susan Rosenthal in psychology. They also had a big um, interdisciplinary training grant at that time. So I really got to work with and interact with psychologists and social workers and adolescent medicine folks. And, and that just was a wonderful way to, to um, move forward in PAG. So that's really, um, it's, it's gone on since then. I've been doing it since <laughs> <It's> then. True. <laughs> well, and you've so. definitely inspired and taught a lot of us. And I think for those of the learners and the medical students and the residents listening, you know, it's an amazing specialty with regards to collaboration because we get to 
um, not only collaborate on a variety of patients of many ages, um, you know, from in utero to adults, um, you know, we get to work with all these different specialties, you know, pediatric subspecialties, urology, surgeons, GI, it's just a, a really insightful and great career because you, you know, are always learning too, because it, things are always different and challenging and um, definitely an intellectually stimulating field. <laughs> it is. And we're so. at the crossroads, as you say, of a lot of different specialties and subspecialties, and it keeps it interesting and fun. And not only right. that, we get to talk to teenagers a lot. That's <laughs> it's true. It keeps us on young. our toes. <laughs> yeah, it keeps our neurons keep to grow. So we, we have to stay on our toes and know the lingo, which is fun. Um, so that it was just a really nice uh, editorial. I love when you kind of review and highlight our specialty because I'm proud of it too. Um, and, and I definitely wanted to introduce something really new to uh, the journal, which is the new JPAG Journal Club. So I am so excited about this. This came really from, from uh, folks in a subcommittee in the Education um, Committee of NASPAG. And it's um, the concept of a journal club is introduced in the guest editorial, which is quite lovely. And the first journal club uh, covers an article on evaluation and management of primary ovarian insufficiency in adolescents and young adults. And, and it's a, a really good article to look at and lots of really good questions that uh, will be useful to people as they do their own journal clubs uh, across the country in whatever setting that, that they find might work for them. So I think it's, it's a really great concept, and uh, I'm, I'm glad we can highlight JPEG in that way. Right. And, and that's just a great journal club. I loved it. I mean, that's a great article, and I think it's a, a wonderful way for OBGYN departments to work together to diagnose and manage these complicated patients um, because it's beyond just prescribing birth control pills and moving on. Um, and I think it's, it's a really great way to study for our focused practice exams and teach our residents and medical students as well. Um, and it's really easy to find by going actually to the NASPAG website as well. And you can just type journal club in the search bar and it pops right up. So uh, hopefully we'll see more and more of those as they come. Are those going to be every month? It will, it will be on an ongoing, ongoing basis. It's not uh, right now. Coming soon. Okay, perfect. Right. And then, you know, JPEG is obviously evolving and growing and there's a whole new section or a new type of article called the commentary. So tell us more about that too. I'm excited to have this, this category and it's, it's one, um, we describe it in the information for authors as topics including clinical perspectives, practice-related issues, ethical dilemmas, or experiences related, um, experiences of clinical relevance to PAG. Um, and, you know, it's kind of a category where it can be what you want to say. Um, I've been approached uh, by several authors about doing a commentary on this, that, or the other topic. And not necessarily ones that I would have come up with. Uh, the information for authors says it's typically by invitation, but again, um, if anyone who's listening to the podcast has an idea about something they might want to do as a commentary, send me an email or talk to me at some point um, about your ideas. 
because I'm really open to it and uh, so would be happy to an extend to extend an invitation if you have something important that you want to say. So um, I'm excited about that. Yeah, that's there. awesome. So what's the best way to email you? So that would be at the, the um, it's JPEG editor in chief and that all runs together as one big word uh, at gmail.com. Perfect. So great. That would be exciting and fun too. All right. Well, we'll, we'll just go to this first article, which is uh, actually, we're going to talk about one great review article in this journal and then highlight uh, some of the great mini reviews and uh, abstracts and posters that were going to be presented at NASPAC this year. But this first article is just, I would say kind of the gold standard article uh, reviewing endometriosis by doctors Jessica Shim and Mark Loeffler at Boston Children's. And it is just a really well done, comprehensive and up-to-date review of endometriosis in the adolescent. And in fact, I've actually already shared this article a few times with some of my pediatric colleagues uh, because it's just so well done and um, kind of reviews and highlights the management issues that we all face. And I think one of the things that I really appreciated about this article, which obviously Dr. Loeffler has always been very good at reiterating, is that endometriosis is unique in teens. Um, so talk, talk to us a little bit about your experience with that over the years, too. So again, as you mentioned, um, Mark Loeffler has really um, been at the forefront of endometriosis issues um, in adolescence. And um, you know, if, if you think about adults with endometriosis and ask them when their symptoms began, most of them say it started during their teenage years. And so one of the things that we see is we certainly see a lot of teens with dysmenorrhea and cyclic pain. But interestingly, and as is pointed out in the review, while it may begin that way for many teens, it becomes acyclic as well. So if, you, if you're seeing a teen whose pain is not just associated with her menses, that doesn't mean it's not endometriosis. And so that's one point that I think is, is really a big point. And then the other point that many of my colleagues who practice adult gynecology don't quite recognize is that if it gets to the point of confirming endometriosis with a diagnostic laparoscopy, um, endometriosis in teens actually looks different. There's an evolution to the ultimately what we describe in adults as classic, the powder burn lesions, but we don't always see those in teens. And sometimes I'll, I'll look and I'll see, and I sometimes describe it to my patients as it just looks like a little ditzel. Doesn't look like much. Um, maybe a red area or a vesicular area. Um, and those are things that I biopsy quite liberally uh, because you can be surprised that endometriosis can look like white or red or clear um, in a teen. And, and so doing those biopsies, and as is emphasized in the article as well, if it doesn't look like there's anything, take some random biopsies. The cul-de-sac is a great area to take random biopsies because you may find microscopic endometriosis as well. So um, really important. And, and uh, this article highlights that really, really nicely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the photos in these, this article is just worth warranting review as well, because it does talk about sort of these clear vesicular lesions or those peritoneal windows, um, because those, those are legitimate endometriosis in our younger population that are often overlooked. 
Um, and, you know, getting close enough with your camera to look and see um, can be really helpful, too. So, I love that their, their description of, and this was described in an article a number of years back uh, from Dr. Laffer, but filling the pelvis with fluid and then submersing the scope. Right. And so you're looking underwater, essentially, um, at, uh, at what the pelvis looks like, and you can get close and have some magnification of those lesions. Right. Absolutely helpful. I, I like that, too. Um, so I think one of the things and why, why I shared this article with some of my colleagues in pediatrics specifically is I think endometriosis is an area in our teens where we can definitely do better in considering the diagnosis. Um, so I, I think you and I had sort of talked a little bit about how, how do we do better at this, for example? What can we keep our eyes open for? Well, again, just keeping always in the back of our minds the possibility. Um, and, um, you know, I, that's, that's a message for our colleagues in primary care. And uh, think about it. We certainly think about it in the teens who come to us. They may have flunked NSAIDs and uh, <laughs> hormonal contraception in terms of managing their pain. And, boy, those are the patients we really need to think about and consider um, whether we're, we're going to confirm the endometriosis with a procedure um, to look for it. And, um, you know, we talk about a lot in adults uh, empirically using GNRH analogs, but because of issues related to bone density in part, um, we tend not to do that so much in teens. And I think that's an important message. You know, the teen has so many more years ahead of her in terms of her reproductive years that uh, I just think it's so important to make the diagnosis in a teenager, or if you don't find endometriosis, to refute it, um, right. to look, and if you don't see it and you do your random biopsies and they're, they're negative, um, then you can move forward in, in managing pain. One of the things that they mention in, in this review, but I, I feel for my own practice has made a huge difference is that when I talk to a teen uh, that I'm worried about endometriosis, I talk about doing a scope, I always discuss the possibility of an insertion of the levonorgestrel intrauterine device at the same time. And particularly if I'm talking to a young teen who probably wouldn't tolerate that very well in the office, um, they're going to be asleep. And what better time could there be to insert an IUD? And uh, I think the, the review article is not quite as positive as my own clinical experience has been. I've had lots and lots of good results from uh, my patients with um, endometriosis and those in whom I haven't found endometriosis who, who have more likely to have cyclic pain and dysmenorrhea. But those patients, too, do really well. So it's kind of a win-win. If they, you put the IUD in while they're asleep, they've got it, and it's helpful whether they've got endometriosis or not. Right. A hundred percent. I agree. That, I think that is definitely underutilized, and it's a great opportunity to place it in a very comfortable setting um, and help with menstrual suppression, uh, you know, birth control. I think there's so many great purposes, so that's a good point. Um, and, and I think one thing that we, you know, would remit, be remiss not to mention, uh, as we all see these um, kind of horrific consults and feedback about doing really drastic surgical procedures, um, such as peritoneal stripping. And um, I think I get some of those consults 
pretty regularly now about patients who've seen a specialist who's offering this really dramatic surgery for their treatment. How, how do you approach that? Or what are you thinking about these tough situations? Well, I remember first reading the case report from Dr. Lawfer, uh, from Mark, and uh, the case report about a patient who came to a second laparoscopy uh, after having had, it may even have been her third laparoscopy, but at any rate, she had had this radical surgery that's really being proposed of peritoneal stripping where every morsel of peritoneum is stripped. And this patient had very extensive adhesions. And that is a huge risk for our patients. We're trying to do no harm. And uh, boy, in the absence of evidence that it's helpful for our patients, and we don't have that evidence for adolescents. um, I too have seen patients who were getting um, recommendations from other surgeons in our area that they, they are the only ones who do the real surgery for endometriosis <laughs> with this <laughs> radical procedure. And boy, we just need to be really, really, really cautious. And, and Dr. Lawfer's case report in JPEG uh, from last year, 2019, um, is, a, is an important, important case report. Yeah. And I think we talked a bit about that in the the sequelae of doing such a drastic surgery can lead to such dramatic harm in these young girls, you know, infertility, scarring. I mean, it's just so um, tragic to see sort of the end game of capitalizing on kind of a vulnerable group of girls and families. So good. We'll plug another case report by Dr. Loffer in your journal, (laughs) in our journal. (laughs) Our journal. Um, (laughs) Exactly. It is all of our journals. Uh, so I think this 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 is really essential reading, like you said, for all of us and for our primary care colleagues and anyone who's taking care of uh, menstrual girls, really. Um, so let's shift gears a bit because, you know, sadly, we didn't all get to come together for our ACRM this year. Uh, but beautifully, we get to see the abstracts and posters submitted. Um, and so I think this is just a beautiful depiction of PAG in my mind, too, is the, the potpourri of all of these abstracts and posters, and they're just fantastic. Um, it's just exciting to think of uh, all the things that we do and we manage, because all of these things just resonated with me as well. Absolutely. They're, you know, what, what walks into our clinic um, is really quite diverse and, and remarkable. So potpourri is one of my favorite words, <laughs> and it's a, it's a good description. I think I first heard it on Jeopardy. What does it mean? <laughs> I've definitely stolen that word. I like it. But it kind of goes along with like myriad and plethora, which are sort of fun ones to uh, incorporate in a sentence too. But They are good um, words. So, so Dr. Tyson, why don't you tell us which, which of the abstracts and posters uh, did you um, caught your attention? Yeah, I, I, I love so many of them, but... Um, for the sake of time, I will narrow them down. But I, I, I think I just wanted to show kind of the breadth and depth of the submissions as well as PAG as a field. So uh, the first one that obviously I think is important to comment on is the childhood sexual trauma among women who trade sex. And I, I mean, it's just such an intense insight into sexual trauma um, and women and children who are involved in sex work and how important um, preventing abuses. I, I mean, this is right along with our ACEs, um, you know, programs and directives to prevent abuse. So I thought important. that was 
it is important. It's always, always important to have that kind of on our radar in our offices as well. Uh, another one was uh, abstract number nine, which was really insightful about the awareness of financial cost and time requirements for fertility preservation among the prescribers of gonadotoxic therapy. So really our pediatric rheumatologists and oncologists. And it, it's sort of a directive, I think, to show that there's work to be done to help our PD oncologists and radiation oncologists and GYN oncologists really address fertility preservation options um, prior to surgery and or treatments. Um, I, I think this is more sort of a springboard off which further research can be done. And I think that would really be a great study to grow from this for sure. There's a big need, yeah. a big need for awareness and for our increasing new awareness among our colleagues. Yeah, I think that would be a useful study for that as well. Uh, one of the other articles, of course, that I loved was, um, well, there were many on the uh, a levonorgestrel IUD. And so, of course, these larks are near and dear to my heart. Um, but I think a nice one was recognizing uh, the occurrence of IUD expulsion in adolescents and young women is, a, is associated with abnormal and heavy uterine bleeding, anemia, and bleeding disorders. And so it's nice to find another marker um, or maybe precursor to a diagnosis that can really help these young girls for the rest of their lives. Um, interestingly enough, they found that there was a relative risk um, of expulsion of 2.2 with a history of bleeding disorder, 2.5 uh, with abnormal uterine bleeding, and almost three with a history of anemia. So sometimes those IUDs that fall out in our adolescence may actually be reflective of girls with sort of underlying disorders we can consider. Uh, I think that would also be a really interesting future study too. Um, and then of course the use and the underutilization of Mirena or uh, levonorgestrel IUDs and adolescents receiving chemotherapy. And I think that would be a great uh, analysis and review article and discussion for uh, PAG uh, providers as well. Um, let's see, the other ones that I really found to be interesting was uh, contraception and counseling about contraception in the emergency department. That has always been something very um, intriguing and interesting to me and sort of finding a point person in the emergency room who would be sort of the advocate for that in the variety of emergency rooms. And there's, I think there's more and more evidence in the emergency department literature uh, addressing this realm as well, because this is also a key touch point for our patients who are involved in sex trafficking. So there was a nice little abstract outlining and touching on that. Um, of course, there were really, really good articles about MRKH and furthering our knowledge to recognize the renal anomalies that go with patients with uterine anomalies and vice versa. So I think uh, there was one that was basically titled um, MRKH, or actually the Herlin-Werner-Wunderlich syndrome should no longer be a zebra, um, that we should be able to you know, better identify this earlier. And we are seeing more and more of these cases even antenatally with pelvic masses and uh, cystic renal changes in our prenatal ultrasounds. So another really interesting PAG arena. So this is also an opportunity to connect with our colleagues in urology. Oh, good point. Um, so we have lots of colleagues who are in urology who are following patients with a single kidney uh, from a very young age. They get referred because of those antenatal ultrasounds. Um, but the message doesn't get to the parent that when the, when the girl is, is uh, pubertal, 
that we should be seeing them and we need to probably re-image at that time when the structures are larger and a little easier to, to see, um, preventing um, problems that occur um, with pain that occurs after menarche. Yeah, that's... If there's an obstructing anomaly. It's a very, very good point. True. Um, and then, you know, we'll, I'll just wrap this up so that everyone can enjoy this concise, hopefully not too long podcast. But I think, you know, some of the other highlights in the abstracts that we should definitely um, encourage reading is just things that are our bread and butter of our practice, which is, you know, addressing girls and their uh, genital appearance and understanding this uh, labioplasty desire and promoting education and reassurance and com confidence. Um, as well as vulvar hematomas and ovarian torsion, um, how to better evaluate those and manage those. Uh, and then lastly, I think we're starting to see more and more innovation in teaching. Uh, there was a, a nice little article about straddle injury repair using 3D modeling. So I think it's exciting to think of the technological advances uh, that we can use in our specialty as well. It was just, it was a great uh, collection in my opinion. So I would really encourage people to go to the issue online or your print copy, take a look at the abstracts. There are all kinds of, I mean, there are things that are, are unusual. I'm, I'm struck by a couple of unusual ones, the dental braces causing <laughs> vulvovaginal dermatitis exactly. with a nickel allergy. Um, when would, I would not have thought of that, um, but yeah, maybe you should. <laughs> so, uh, so um, encouraging people to, to read through the abstracts, just like at the, if we were at the meeting, we would stroll down and look at the posters and really um, have a chance to talk to the, to the authors. So unfortunately, we can't, can't do that right now, but we can read their work and see the, the incredible work that people put into preparing posters and abstracts. So uh, would would strongly encourage people to take a look at those in JPEG. 100%. All right. Well, I think that is all we have to talk about today, um, but we'll look forward to connecting again sooner than later to go um, through our June edition of the Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology with our wonderful editor, Dr. Paula Hillard. Thank you so much, well, Nicole. Well, you guys, everyone have a good day and stay well. <laughs>